Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. On September 30th, 2023, a collection of federal subsidies for child care expired. The loss of this funding has sent state and local governments, along with operators and patrons of child care businesses, scrambling for answers on how this will affect organizations focused on early childhood development. Today, members of Brownstein and the Early Care and Education Consortium teams will discuss the status of programs affected by the subsidies cliff, how it may impact stakeholders, and possible solutions for policymakers. On September 30th, $24 billion in government funding that was issued to child care providers during the pandemic expired. Hundreds of thousands of providers benefited from the stabilization funding. Much of it went towards helping providers grapple with the challenges presented by the pandemic. This includes rent, mortgage, utilities, purchasing PPE, and increased teacher compensation. However, states also used the funding to help address longstanding issues in the industry, including improving affordability, quality, and access to care. Now, with the funding having expired, providers and families are going to feel the effects. There has been a lot of speculation in the news about thousands of programs shutting down overnight. While some programs will close, the bigger issue will be the silent effects that are not immediately obvious. As the grants come to an end, provider compensation may go down, exacerbating labor issues in the industry. Eligibility thresholds may also go back down, resulting in families losing access to care. Reimbursement rate decreases will result in providers no longer being able to serve low-income families as well. The impact will be different in states based on the individual state's response to the funding ending as well. I'm Radha Mohan, and I'm a senior policy advisor and counsel at Brownstein. I also serve as executive director for the Early Care and Education Consortium. We have here with us today my colleague, Sage Sheftel, a policy advisor at Brownstein with an expertise in healthcare and education related issues on the federal level. Thanks, Radha. It's nice to be here. I'm also joined by Kathleen McHenry the Early Care and Education Consortium's Director of State Government Relations. Kathleen has worked in state and federal government handling early education issues for most of her career. Hi, Rada. Thanks so much for having me. I'm also joined by Elsa Jacobson, a Director of State Government Relations for the Early Care and Education Consortium. Prior to joining ECEC, Elsa was director for public policy for a prominent childcare nonprofit organization, and she also holds a law degree, having worked in the early education sector for most of her career. Great to be with you, Rada. I'm going to turn it over to our panelists now, who are going to tell us a little bit more about the expiration of the COVID-19 funding, as well as the impact on the state level, and how the industry is grappling with the expiration of the funding. First, I'll turn it over to Sage. 
Sage, you work with the Early Care and Education Consortium. Can you tell us a little bit about the mission of the organization and some of the work that you do? Sure. So the Early Care and Education Consortium, or ECEC's mission, is to advance policies that strengthen the child care system and expand access to high-quality early care and education programs for all families, and particularly those from underserved communities. We also advocate for strong federal and state policies that support the early care and education workforce, lower costs for families, bring quality to scale, and expand access to more children. Yeah, so our work focuses on developing and advancing policies that meet our mission across the country. Through the Federal Child Care and Development Block Grant, or CCDBG, states are given funding to help support access to child care for low-income families. Given that that is the main source of funding for child care, that is what we advocate for across the country, stronger policies at the state level to support providers and families, as well as the expansion and preservation of that funding. I would also say that one of the most important policies we pursue across the country is ensuring that early childhood programs are delivered through a mixed delivery system, meaning that eligible families can access early care and education in a variety of settings, whether it be through a community-based provider, a faith or home-based provider, or a public school. Great. And given your work with the industry, it would be great if you could tell us a little bit about how the industry is grappling with the expiration of the funding. What is the current landscape for the industry? What are the biggest challenges that they face post-pandemic? Sage Sheftel, why don't you kick us off? So I'll just start with a high-level overview of the landscape and then turn it over. The childcare industry, just like all others, was significantly impacted by the pandemic, and we're still learning to operate in this new normal where COVID will always be present. When the pandemic hit, programs were immediately forced to shut down until they and the workers that they employ were deemed essential to allow all other parts of the economy to, to keep doing their jobs with access to childcare. And it was this recognition of how essential the industry was that helped governments and businesses understand how essential childcare is to, to allow the rest of the economy to function. And as Rada mentioned, a significant amount of temporary funding was provided to the industry, but this was temporary and the largest bucket of that funding just expired. So now we're looking at what states and what the federal government can do to make sure that, that families continue to have access to care. So as Sage just mentioned, we're at a point where much of the federal relief funding has already been utilized, and we've seen lawmakers and ECE stakeholders begin to identify longer-term solutions to address systemic issues in the child care field. Um, you know, these are issues like the workforce shortage that was only exacerbated by the pandemic. Elsa, you mentioned that most of the funding has already been utilized, what exactly is the status of the funding today? How much remains? That's a great question, Rada. And to answer the question, I need to begin with a little bit of context. Um, there were three major relief packages passed by the federal government that offered one-time child care funding to the states. These laws are referred to as CARES, CURSA, and ARPA. Those are the acronyms. And collectively, they invested over $50 billion in one-time funding for the child care industry. The majority of this funding expired this past September, and that included the $24 billion in one-time stabilization funds that states distributed to providers. 
However, states still have until September 30th of next year, that's 2024, to expend their $15 billion in one-time CCDBG funds from ARPA. And ECEC has been tracking each state's spending, and across all states, about half of the ARPA CCDBG funds remain. Yeah, so um, the expiration of funding that Elsa mentioned has been widely referred to as the child care cliff. A majority of child care providers across the country have been receiving monthly or quarterly checks through the stabilization grants. But as states have started to taper off these programs over the last few months, some analysts are concerned that it will once again become more challenging for providers to stay in business. Thanks, Kathleen. It would be great to hear a little bit more about how states have actually been using this money. So you've talked a little bit about the benefit to providers. How did states use this money? What are some other ways that they helped with the overall stabilization of the industry? So the one-time federal relief funding, as you've alluded to, has been really critical. Um, It enabled many providers across the country to literally keep their doors open and retain their staff during the pandemic. And much of the federal funding was earmarked for stabilization grants. And this direct-to-provider flexible funding has enabled programs to pay rent, to cover other operational costs, to retain staff, um, particularly when enrollment was unstable and providers faced increased costs associated with myriad COVID protocols. Um, But federal relief dollars have also enabled states to fund impactful programmatic and policy changes, um, such as increasing provider reimbursement rates, covering family co-payments, raising the income threshold for families to qualify for childcare assistance, paying based on enrollment rather than attendance, providing early childhood staff with really essential access to childcare vouchers and more. Yeah, you know, I think to sum up what Elsa was describing is what we saw across the country was really, you know, laboratories of of states identifying important policies to pursue with that federal funding. So you saw states um, identify particular needs that they had that they could do with that additional federal money. And with the guidance from the federal government, states could really pursue what was most needed in their communities across the country. Given that states were laboratories of innovation for this funding, how are they going to respond to the expiration of the funds? What will be the impact in states, not just for providers, but for families as well? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, You know, I think the success of the relief funding was, again, um, all of the different success stories that we saw across the country were so unique. But without the promise of ongoing federal funding at the levels that we saw during the pandemic, states are going to have to make some difficult decisions. So what are they going to do to invest in children and families in their states to ensure that parents can continue participating in the workforce? Um, These conversations are already happening in states across the country. Some states have begun investing their own dollars into the childcare and early learning space to continue some of these important policy changes. Really what they're doing is recognizing the importance of long-term solutions in moving past some of those temporary policy changes that were made with that pandemic era funding. Elsa, are states also investing their own resources to continue some of these programs? What are you observing in your work across the states? 
Yes, we absolutely are seeing those some of those state investments. Um, I can highlight just a few examples. Um, in Minnesota, Massachusetts, and Illinois, all three states have dedicated state resources to continue versions of their stabilization programs. Um, and I should note that the programs in Minnesota and Illinois are now more focused on workforce development. In California, Pennsylvania, and North Carolina, these states have increased provider reimbursement rates with state dollars. And Colorado and Michigan have made permanent a COVID-era policy of paying providers based on enrollment versus attendance. At the same time, we're also starting to see the impact of the expiration of federal funds. And I wanted to share a couple examples of, of situations where states haven't used their own resources to plug the gap filled by the expiration of federal funds. Michigan is an example. Um, providers there recently saw a reduction in their reimbursement rates of over 20% when federal relief funds that had been used to supplement rates during the pandemic weren't replaced with state dollars. Georgia is another example. Georgia had used relief dollars to temporarily increase family eligibility to serve an additional 25,000 children, but hasn't continued this policy with state funds. So now the state is in the process of moving those children off its subsidy program and returning to pre-pandemic service levels. So, you know, looking ahead, every state is going to respond a bit differently to the expiration of these federal relief funds, but ideally they'll be making decisions based on the unique needs of children, families, and educators in their states being mindful of those effective policies that were implemented during the pandemic that could be continued and or expanded. Great, thank you. What are the biggest challenges now that the industry and states are going to have to grapple with, especially given that there may not be another tranche of funding coming down the pipeline? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, the, the overarching challenge that the states are going to have to grapple with, you know, I think there's two. The first is whether or not they're going to invest their own dollars into the system and then the second would be what policies they're going to pursue, especially if they do decide to invest their own funding into that system. So there's some really big questions that, you know, I think states need to consider at a high level, you know, the extent to which they will fund a birth through five system rather than just focusing on pre-K for three and four-year-olds, for example, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but care for infants and toddlers is often the most expensive and also the least available. Um, so, you know, states are really going to have to think about how to fund that whole system. Another question I think states are going to have to think about is whose role it is to pay for childcare, particularly for low-income working families. For instance, a lot of states are starting to consider what role the business community plays in helping promote the affordability and supply of childcare for their workforce. Um, and states are also starting to partner with businesses as they step up to the plate more often. So I think this is going to be a really interesting space to watch over the next couple of years. And I would add that there are a couple other longstanding issues that really existed pre-pandemic that states are going to continue to have to grapple with. Um, one is that in general, provider reimbursement rates have historically been low and haven't reflected the true cost of care. And so this means that many providers operate on thin margins and frankly struggle to pay competitive wages to their staff. This early childhood workforce consists mostly of women and disproportionately women of color. 
As I mentioned a little earlier, some states have recently increased their reimbursement rates, in some cases using federal relief funding. But unless this federal funding is replaced with state dollars, some providers may be forced to increase costs for families. Workforce recruitment and retention challenges, uh, you know, were also exacerbated by the pandemic and you know, if they're not adequately addressed with state investment will continue to be a problem. Both low reimbursement rates and workforce issues impact the supply of childcare and ultimately parents' participation in the workforce. Given the monumental impact that this is going to have on providers and families, what can providers do at the state level to push for policies that help children and families? Where is this conversation going? And where is the messaging going on this as well? Yeah, um, great question, Rada. So, you know, our industry needs to help make the case for both prioritizing this funding and for making recommendations to states on how those limited amounts of resources should be prioritized. You know, to sum up the conversation we just had, states are really looking at how to focus on longer term solutions for, for the childcare market. Um, and for children and families. And so states are going to be looking to us, to, to those of us who are working in the field, to the providers that are on the ground every day, and to the families who are part of the early care and education system, you know, as well as the businesses that rely on those parents to work every day. Um, they're really going to be looking at us for what solutions they should be pursuing. And so it's up to all of us to become engaged, stay involved, stay informed, um, and participate in those conversations as much as possible. And there are many ways for providers, families, and other ECE stakeholders to engage in advocacy, to raise up these very important issues. Uh, they can invite state and federal legislators to visit their centers or their family child care homes so that elected officials can see early care and education in action and learn directly from practitioners about the needs of the field. They can also join their state childcare associations, which are so often engaged in advocacy and provide opportunities for members to identify shared priorities, develop policy solutions, and communicate with legislators. Um, I would note that statewide coalitions provide similar opportunities. Um, early childhood stakeholders can also join or attend events of their local chambers of commerce to help ensure that members of the business community are aware of pressing early childhood issues and how these issues are connected to the health of their businesses. And finally, associations like ECEC hold regular calls to update stakeholders on important policy developments and legislation and to garner feedback from the field. We hold such a call with the National Child Care Association called Champions of Mixed Delivery. And I would say, you know, in terms of messaging, ECE stakeholders and advocates are emphasizing the critical nature of childcare for families and for the economy. But we're also highlighting the need, as we've been talking about during this call, to sustain and expand upon and refine the early childhood investments that were made during the pandemic that are so critical to the long-term health of the industry and to ensuring access for more families. Thanks, Elsa. What trends can we expect to see over the next year? You've talked a lot about the investments that states are currently making. We've talked about the impact on children and families. Now, the question is, where are states headed? Where is the federal government headed over the next year? 
And how can the industry, how can childcare providers best position themselves for the opportunities that may arise at both the federal and state level? Yeah, so again, you know, I think we're going to be moving beyond a conversation about relief dollars and towards a conversation about how to sustain the industry and support families. So at the state level, um, you know, I, I really think state legislatures and governors will be looking to identify what has worked well over the last couple of years and how to sustain some of those initiatives. I think that there will be some really, you know, robust conversations about how to support the child care workforce. Um, and as Elsa had mentioned, um, discussions about how to improve reimbursement rates and the various policies um, within the child care and development block grant that can um, really be, um, be strengthened and better support providers and families across the country. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think you're also going to see more businesses and companies be involved in the conversation. Uh, we're really seeing business leaders, local chambers of commerce, and even the U.S. Chamber of Commerce begin advocating for a stronger childcare system. And I would just add that ECE practitioners and advocates really need to share with elected officials the policies that are working well in the states. And we've mentioned a couple of them today. Um, states can truly be laboratories for innovation and the successes and lessons learned there can inform both state and federal policy. And I think while we'll see most of the action over the next few years be at the state level, it's also important to mention that the federal government can really drive change. There are fewer and fewer potential opportunities at the federal level, but there is the annual appropriations process. And so it's important that the federal government is continuing to hear from the field, from parents, from businesses who rely on child care to, to make sure that they're hearing how important child care is. Um, so the field really needs to make sure to position itself to be at the table when any opportunities at the federal level do present themselves. Elsa, Sage, and Kathleen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us a little bit about the expiration of the federal dollars and the impact on the state level. It looks like there will be big moments for the industry on both the state and the federal level in the coming years. Thank you for telling us a little bit more about some of the trends that you expect to see and where the conversation is headed. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.